Hello, fellow Rebel Capitals. Hope you're well. So I just had the most incredible conversation I have ever had. <laughs> I can actually say that confidently. A couple hours ago on Jeff's channel, I spoke with both him and Lynn for probably an hour and a half. Now, Josh, you'll have to tell us when that interview will go live. But uh, what I can do right now is give you my reaction to the conversation and give you some insights as to what we actually discussed and then kind of give you my perspective there, give you kind of like, like a reaction video before the video even comes out. So what you won't believe is we discussed the game Musical Chairs. Now, th this, and although this may seem overly simplistic, that analogy got incredibly complex. And the reason, one of the main reasons I want to bring this up to you guys first is because I think this gives us a fantastic way to describe the monetary system in a way that anybody can understand. And it's not just fractional reserve banking, right? That might be the obvious. Yeah, oh, George, I get it. Musical chairs, fractional reserve. There's only $10 and there's $100. No, 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 no. That, that's not what I'm talking about here. Let's go over to just a little visual. Five kids, four chairs, right? But where this really gets, and you guys know how it's played, the music is going, so the five kids are rotating around the chairs, and when the music stops, the kids have to find a chair, and the kid that doesn't find a chair is out of the game. And then the other kids stand back up, they take a chair out, so now there's four kids and three chairs. The music starts and they just keep going through that process until you've got two kids, one chair. You stop the music. Whoever is sitting on the chair is the winner and that other kid is SOL. <laughs> uh, they're just the first loser. <laughs> but why this is so important and, and how we or, or how Lynn and then Jeff and I kind of framed it in this conversation we had is first and foremost asking the question, who creates the chairs? Now, this may sound like a simple question, but when you think about it, it's actually very complex. So, Josh, let's go through this, buddy. If, if I had to ask you, in the monetary game of musical chairs, who creates the chairs? The Fed and the banks. The Fed, the bank? Who else can do it? Ooh, uh, I don't know. Who else can do it? The government. The government, yeah, yeah, yeah. By issuing the government. Now, now, what most people would say is, oh, it's just the Fed. But that's not entirely accurate. It's the if we're talking about just the game when the music stops. Now, what Lynn did, which I think makes it even more, or which uh, sharpens the, the thinking one notch higher, is it is true that JP Morgan can create more chairs. It is true that the government can do that. But if we really want to get technical, they're not really creating more chairs. They're just keeping the music playing for longer. You see, J.P. Morgan can come in, or the government can also come in, and say, oh, you know what? No, nope, guys, stand up. We're going to keep the music going for another half hour or another five minutes or whatever it is. Where if we want to get super technical about it, the Fed can create 
an additional chair. And therefore, the music doesn't have to keep playing. And you say, well, George, there you have it. There you have it. That's the answer. Uh, Not really. Because then you have to ask the question, if the music is still running, do the chairs matter? And if the chairs matter, do the number of chairs matter? You see, think about it. If these kids are walking around in a circle, these five kids, and the music never stops, doesn't matter how many chairs are there because they're not being used. See? So the three main questions that we have to ask, which seem very simple to answer, but are actually incredibly complex, are who creates the chairs? Are the chairs necessary? when the music is playing and who determines when the music stops and when it starts playing again. So let's just try to figure out uh, the middle question. You know, why is that important? Because this is going to tell you if QE matters, not if additional bank reserves or bailing out matters, because that's once the music stopped. When the music is actually playing, the number of bank reserves matter. One example that we use specifically in our conversation was QE2. I said, did QE2 do anything? It wasn't a crisis situation. So did it give the banks the ability to do this or that or whatever? And we, we didn't really come to a specific agreement there. But one thing that we uh, all see in a similar way is it at the very least had a psychological impact. So if the music is playing, if you add another chair, it's really not doing anything. But what it is potentially doing from a psychological standpoint, is saying, hey, kids, or hey, banks, go ahead and take more risks. Go ahead and take more risks than you otherwise would have, because this is a symbol of our intent. The fact that we added another chair, so now there's five instead of four, this is a symbol of our intent. So go ahead and take more risks, even though the kids didn't need the chairs because the music is still playing. You see how cool, like this analogy <laughs> How cool this analogy actually is because it can go so many different directions and it it leads you to ask so many more questions and each question is more complex than the one prior. So if you are describing the monetary system to your friends, I, I would describe it this exact same way, the exact same way. Now, what I I would be very curious as to what your guys' conclusions would be based on those three main questions that I asked. Who creates the chairs? Do the chairs matter when the music's playing? And who determines when the music stops or starts? See? Now, looking at this, uh, uh, let me now give you guys some other details on what we discussed. One thing that's very important is we all need to understand what each other is saying. And one of the complexities with macroeconomics is there is no one universal language. And throughout the hour and a half that we were talking, I actually, a couple times, I, I didn't actually do timeout, but I, I, I figuratively had to do this timeout where I said, guys, we're doing it again. We're, we're, we're absolutely doing it again. Meaning that Jeff is using a completely different definition or using a phrase in a way that uh, where Lynn is using that same phrase, but meaning something entirely different, right? So one of the examples I'll give you at the beginning of the uh, interview, which I think all of you will find just as fascinating as I did, 
as people look at Lynn and Jeff, and they're often seen as people who have opposing views to the point where podcasters will want to talk to them and get them to debate and, you know, all these things. And I remember the last time they did uh, Peter's, Peter McCormick's podcast, and he just asked them the very first question, does the Fed print money? Lynn says yes. Jeff says no. Oh, why goodness gracious. Look at that. They disagree. But if you get down into the nitty gritty, they actually agree. It just, it's, it's a matter of terms and definitions, right? So what we did is we, uh, one of the initial questions we uh, kind of thought through was, does the Fed impact M2 or can the Fed impact M2 money supply? So Lynn's position obviously is yes. But then when you ask Jeff that more specific question, he says, yeah, absolutely. And then Jeff will sit there and say, well, the Fed's balance sheet doesn't matter. And I'll say, hey, the level of bank reserves don't matter. But I'll also say that the Fed is anti-deflationary in terms of a crisis situation, meaning that the Fed is anti-deflationary when the music stops. It's just they don't matter when the music's playing, (laughs) right? Which is a much better way to describe it than the way I was trying to describe it uh, over the past three weeks or something. But if you ask Jeff, you say, Jeff, if the Fed bails out XYZ Bank through the BTFP, is that anti-deflationary in the short term? And he says, yeah. Yeah. Now he's got a very interesting view because he says in the short term, it may be anti-deflationary, but in the long run, it's, uh, it, it actually isn't. And what he used as an example, well, I, he said, if you were to just let the banks go bust in 2008, it would have been a disaster. That's for sure. But we would have rebuilt on a more sol- solid foundation and therefore maybe not just uh, inflation, but growth would have been higher than other than we otherwise would have seen. So uh, where they were kind of talking past one another there is Lynn was saying, okay, in uh, 2009, Q2, Q3, we had 2% deflation. So she's like, if the Fed would not have come in and saved the day, that deflation would have been a lot lower. So therefore, the Fed's bank reserves were anti-deflationary. But Jeff would say, well, maybe, but that doesn't really matter because what happens is we were growing at this trend and the Fed came in and sure, they bailed everything out, but that didn't fix anything. And it didn't fix anything because although we might have not had a complete deflationary collapse, we're still just, let's just say we're flatlining and therefore we're not growing at the trend we were. And by a technical definition, that is still a an economic depression. A depression doesn't mean just negative GDP. It's actually below trend. Rickards points that out all the time. So, and, and that's just, sure, the Fed can come in and do these anti-deflationary things, but that doesn't fix the problem. It's the, the problem remains that we're going to, the growth rate or literally the standard of living for everybody is going to continue to decline. That's why those things matter because the average Joe and Jane sits back and listens to, you know, uh, Jeff and Lynn go back and forth and they're like, this is all nonsense. They're just, they're speaking Chinese, first of all. I don't even know what they're saying. And do we really need to get down into that level of nuance? And what does this mean for me? Well, what it means for you is that the Fed isn't going to prevent your standard of living from going down because they can't overwhelm the distortions that the government creates. And then the Fed themselves creates even more distortions, which makes the economy even that uh, even that less efficient moving forward. And so uh, Lynn's view 
which I, we all agree with, of course, in the short term, anti-deflationary if the Fed comes in and bails out a bank. But Jeff's point is longer term, it, it, it makes it a lot worse, even from a standpoint of growth, because the Fed, A, isn't fixing the problem, and B, they're allowing these zombie banks, like Japan, great example, to continue and bring down the rest of the economy. And then I, I we, uh, well, I kind of chimed in and said, yeah, it's exactly like 1920, 21 compared to 2930. So if you guys know the way that worked out, right after the Spanish flu, we had a massive depression in the United States, but no one ever talks about it. And why? I mean, the unemployment rate in 1920, 21 got down lower than the worst point in the Great Depression of 1930s. But no one ever discusses it. Why? Because it was a proper V-shaped recovery. The government did nothing. They just, you screwed up? All right, bye-bye, you're bust. And in fact, I think it, they, if anything, they actually raised rates and they reduced government spending during this time. So they did the opposite of the Keynesian approach. And Jeff was saying that he believes that if the Fed would have taken the same approach in 2008, in the short term, yes, we would have absolutely had more deflation or it would have been a, a worse. The, uh, the economic recession or depression would have been worse. But longer term, we would have come out of that. And the growth rate, if you zoom out over a 20-year period, would have been even higher. Therefore, the standard of living for the average Joe would have been higher as well. So that that's where you, you've got to get into that nuance, right? It, it's, it's not just what Jeff is saying is not just, oh, the Fed doesn't matter. It's, oh, the Fed can't fix anything. As far as the delta between long-term trend or what the potential growth of the economy is and what it actually does. And I think one, uh, a couple of charts that would really back him up on that are the uh, growth rate of bank credit within the system before and after quantitative easing. Because everyone thinks, not everyone, but uh, so many people think that, oh my gosh, well, when the Fed came out and did all this quantitative easing, it just gave the banks all this balance sheet capacity where they could just go out and lend, 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 lend. And then they just decide to lend into the financial economy. And that's what makes stocks go higher. But this, this is, that, that's, that's completely ignoring history. Because when you look at history, I might even have the charts pulled up here. And I've got uh, bank credit. So we, and keep in mind, this is not a log chart, guys, because if this was a log chart, it would be blatantly obvious that if we just look at just say, you know, 1995 to 2007, the amount of bank credit in the system went up at a much faster rate than from 2010, call it, to 2019. Well, how is this possible? Well, the, the one point that this makes is that the number of chairs, when the music is still playing, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because with no reserves in the system, or no chairs, the banks created more loans. They saw, saw, they saw more opportunity for risk-reward, most likely, because the economy, they saw opportunities within the economy, not just the financial economy, the real economy. Now, you could argue right here, which I totally agree, that one of the main opportunities they saw was in the housing market. <laughs> and that... And that led to a massive bubble. <laughs> that is true. That is very, very true. But the concept is still the same. They did this with no reserves in the system, right? So Hey, guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the 
incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Serezna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Jason Hartman, real estate, and Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. Then you look at the, I mean, we could just do real GDP growth and you would, you would see the exact same trend that we are growing at a very fast clip or a much faster clip. And that then uh, if you were to keep the trend line going, if you follow my arrow, I'm just doing a hypothetical chart for you here. You would see that uh, GDP would grow, 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 grow like this. And the gap, the delta became more and more and more pronounced, right? To the point where I think uh, today, what is the GDP? Uh, what are we at? Uh, 30, uh, 30 trillion or something like that. That if you would have maintained the trend that we had prior to QE, GDP right now, like nominal GDP, would be like 40 trillion. I mean, just a, a, an astronomical number, which would most like, and I know GDP isn't a perfect measurement, but that would most likely mean that the poor and middle class would have had a better standard of living. There's a lot of things that you can draw from that, but that would be uh, one that would be right on the top of my list. So then getting back to another thing that we discussed, which you guys will really enjoy, is the trade-offs between uh, money elasticity. And this is this uh, part of the conversation got extremely technical. Uh, it's one of those conversations that you'll probably have to listen to a couple times, but every time you listen to it, you'll enjoy it even more. And so Lynn started off with some great points going back to the 19, excuse me, the 1880s and how the uh, gold standard was set up. And she described it in a way that I had never heard. Uh, I thought about it, but I'd never heard it communicated in this way. That's for final settlement. Not, I'm not talking about settlement. That's another thing that we, we've got to be very specific on how we're using that term. But final settlement would have been when a bank... Uh, let's say has IOUs from another bank, that bank would have to physically send them gold. That would be technical final settlement. Now the banks can settle in other ways, but that's, and that might be cool with the banks, but to be super, super specific and technical, that isn't actually final settlement. So what you had is you had all of these technological advancements, like the, I forgot what, she was uh, the, the telegraph. I remember was one, and basically all these ways of communicating that didn't exist. But basically all these ways of communicating that were in a world that was far more technologically advanced than just moving physical gold from one area to the other. And and since it was so much more technically advanced, it could happen much faster. So it's just like the current day Swift system. 
right? So it's a messaging system. Well, back there, back then, uh, let's just say prior before the, any communication, prior before the telegraph, the, the only way they could do it, like they'd have to send like a, like a Pony Express letter or something back and forth. So it's, you might as well send the gold. Like, what are we doing here? What's the point? But when you get to the telegraph where you can just basically swift, send a message back and forth from bank to bank, or maybe in this case, goldsmith to goldsmith, now all of a sudden you get this instantly. You're like, oh yeah, we can just send messages back and forth. Well, that's way faster than this the than transferring gold was, but a letter wasn't that much faster at all. You see. So what this did is it incentivized, when you look at a standpoint of risk reward, it incentivized these entities to settle in ways that were just simply on their own ledgers with actual without actual the actual final settlement of the gold itself because it was cumbersome. So her argument there is uh, with a, a new system, such as with Bitcoin, you've got instant settlement on the base layer. And therefore, there won't be as there won't be the incentive or as much of an incentive for these entities to create credit amongst each other. Let's just say ledger money, because why would they when they can actually do final settlement? There, There is no... Uh, well, I think in her, in, in her view, there, there wouldn't be an incentive to do that. I think in Jeff's view, there would still be a quite a big incentive to not settle on the base layer because we're not just looking at the rewards being settlement. We're looking at the rewards being making money in ways that you can't if you have final settlement. You see, that's where things get really, really interesting. Where if all these banks are, you know, if they're not settling finally with Bitcoin or gold or whatever it is, or even with dollars, you know, if they're just settling between each other on their ledgers, that may give them other profit opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have. So it's, it's not just, you know, what's the safest way to settle and the fastest way to settle. It's where can you maximize your returns? Because that has to weigh into the overall risk reward and the decision-making process, right? And then uh, one of Jeff's points which was was great, is that, look, if you would not have had this elasticity of money, and he, he points out several times in U.S. history, that you likely would not have had the growth. And even though you you might have a bigger boom and bust cycle, on net balance, you, society at large is going to be far better off. And Lynn had a great counterpoint where she said, uh, maybe, but let's also remember that if you're if you've got that growth period, let's say between, let's just say a 20-year period, then a lot of that growth might not be due to the increase in the money supply, but it might be that that increase in money supply is drawing demand forward. So let's just say that this is a period between 1900 and 19, or maybe better 1910 and uh, 1930, or let's just say the 1920s. That's probably the best example. I think it's one that, that uh, we used in the conversation. So you have all this credit creation, and that's bringing demand forward from the 1930s. So sure, the 1920s looks great because of an expansion of money, but then you got to pay the fiddler when it comes to the 1930s. But then Jeff would say well, the 1930s didn't have to be like the 1930s. They could have been just like 1920 to 1921. So bottom, excuse me, bottom line here, guys, is this is a conversation that you are not going to want to miss. I mean, as we were talking back and forth, I was just grinning from ear to ear because I was having so much fun. And the way we set it up is not as an interview. At the very beginning, we basically said, look, let's just pretend we're all at dinner and there's no camera. 
and let's just let's just hash things out. Let's just talk about this. Let's just discuss it as we would if no one was listening. And that's where the magic happens. Let me tell you. So Josh, when are they going to be able to listen to this interview? Uh, probably Sunday. I'm not sure. Possibly Sunday. It, Sunday. I, I, I'm fairly confident they'll be able to by Sunday. Okay. So they'll be able to hear that on Jeff's podcast or on his uh, YouTube channel. Yeah. Okay. Awesome guys on that note. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. As always, make sure that you're saying it for freedom, liberty, free market, capitalism. Josh, do you have my Rebel Capitalist live pitch queued up? There hey you guys. go. First George, I'll hand it over to you. The, the non-baseball cap, George. <laughs> we'll see you guys on the next video. What are you going to do if the states split due to what's happening at the border? Or maybe we have this debt crisis. Or maybe we just have a recession. What are you going to do? Now, you may say to yourself, George, I got this one covered. I got my gold, silver, Bitcoin. I got my treasuries. I got my stocks. I'm good to go. Really? How did that work out for you back in 2020 when the government locked you in a cage? You see, my point is we definitely have to prioritize our financial future. We have to survive whatever is coming our way in 2024. And I can assure you, it's going to be very tumultuous and very volatile. I always say the bigger the crisis, the bigger the opportunity. How do you do that? You've got to get educated. You've got to surround yourself by like-minded people. And there's no better place to do that than at Rebel Capitalist Live. That's the conference I have. It's coming up. We're going to be showing you what we are doing with our own portfolios. And more importantly, what we're doing in our own lives, you're going to be able to take these strategies and implement them in your own life. All of this is going to be completely actionable. In my opinion, this is one of the best ways to create the future you want. Take the bull by the horns. Don't leave it up to someone else. Don't leave it up to the government. This is your job to make sure that you're doing everything you can to build the life you want to live, not only for yourself, but for your family. You can get your tickets right now at rebelcapitalistlive.com.